It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Strong mayors building homes. Strong mayors building homes. Strong mayors building homes. Homes building. Mayor Strong? Beginning soon in Ontario, some strong mayors... Two, to be exact. ...will be using their newfound strength to allegedly build homes. How exactly these Ubermenschen, or Uber mayors, or Uber burgermeisters, will channel their will to power toward the construction of new housing developments is not yet clear. Certainly, vetoing council items, single-handedly crafting city budgets by oneself... And hiring and firing the city administrators at will represents, if not the end of history, then at least the end of local democracy as we know it. Because as we suss out in this month's episode, the point of the Doug Ford government's Strong Mayors Building Homes Act is, of course, to make Premier Doug Ford the strongest mayor of them all. Alison Smith, publisher of Queen's Park Today. And is Burgermeister really what they call a mayor in Germany? I might be mispronouncing it, but yes. And I'm Jonathan Goldsby, news editor at Candleland. And I learned that fact thanks to our former, as termed in the German press, cracked Burgermeister or Meister. And this is Wag the Doug, once again, a monthly podcast about Doug Ford. So the Strong Mayors Building Homes Act is a piece of legislation that was introduced this summer at Queen's Park during the brief five-week setting that the legislature had, bringing mm-hmm. things back after the election, mostly to pass the budget bill. But they, they, they threw this one in there, too. And it's now passed, too, right? It's now passed, yes. Uh, I got royal assent a By couple weeks ago. Which monarch? I can ask it for the first time in my life. The queen. It was oh, the queen, yeah. Good, good, good um, for her. Another piece of legislation did get royal assent, also via the queen, um, but it actually happened after she had died. We just didn't know it yet, or the lieutenant governor didn't know it yet. So all the, all the next pieces of legislation will be for the king. 
So yes, what? Why are we talking about this bill? Well, who are the strong mayors? Why are they building houses? We're going to get to all of that. But first, I think we just set the stage for what problem the PCs are ostensibly trying to solve with this piece of legislation. So it's the housing crisis, everybody. It's hard to find a place to live, and it's expensive to find a place to live, and there's not enough new places uh, being constructed to live in. In the fall of 2021, Municipal Affairs and Housing Minister Steve Clark appointed a Housing Affordability Task Force, you can't hear my air quotes because that's how audio works, to come up with ways to tackle the issue. As we've told you before on the show, it was chaired by a banker who had made $4 million the prior year. And just to offer an update on that, he made $6.75 million last year. Anyway, the group reported back with its findings earlier this year, determining that land is not being used efficiently across Ontario uh, with too many neighborhoods consisting of single-family dwellings, which is true. It said the province could make better use of its transit investments by allowing unlimited height and density of residential buildings near transit stations and by allowing as-of-right zoning on any streets utilized by public transit. So that would mean towers up to 11 stories could be built on virtually any corridor in Toronto without consultations or zoning bylaw amendments because, as we all know, no gradations at all exist between the zero of the status quo and turning developments all the way up to 11. To combat nimbyism, the task force also called for the depoliticization of the development approval process. They wanted to scale back public consultations. They wanted to restrict heritage designations and weed out Ontario land tribunal challenges, which can sometimes delay projects for so long that they become unviable. You know, because if you ask anyone what's holding Toronto back, they'll surely tell you it's that the city's built form isn't a reflection of capitalism let loose in the face of basic human needs. I mean, the Queen even pegged that back in 1973 when she was here. No one coming to Toronto after an interval of 14 years can possibly fail to notice the changes, the growth, and the general improvement of standards. This material development is only to be expected in this age of technological progress. The only danger is to mistake material growth for social improvement. It is no good asking the question, are people happier as a result of all this development? That's interesting. Well, at least the Queen lived long enough to potentially hear if such news made it all the way to the palace that the PCs are going to build 1.5 million Mm -hmm. homes in the next decade. So the PCs, that that 1.5 million number was the kind of a top level takeaway from the, the task force report. Very slogan ready statement. That's what Ontario needs. 1.5 million, one decade to do it. Okay, so the PCs latched onto this number. They spouted it over the course of the election campaign this spring. Notably, all the other opposition parties at Queen's Park also agreed that this is a great number, and it's actually one of the few things they all were on the same page about during the election campaign. However, things are obviously not as simple as a slogan. Because if they were, the government surely would simply just get it done. Exactly. Despite making this pledge, the provincial government's actual official plans, you know, the real like documents that make the government turn that aren't just things cabinet ministers and the premier are saying out loud, continue to undermine this goal in a whole bunch of ways. For example, the spring budget, which is compiled by the Ministry of Finance, very official, it projects that Ontario is actually going to build fewer homes per year over the next four years than it did in 2021. Mm. So the number of houses that the Ministry of Finance thinks are going to get built 
is less, whereas building 1.5 million uh, in 10 years would require significantly Ah. more. That's one problem. Okay. Uh, What's number two? (laughs) Number two, Steve Clark, the Minister of Municipal Affairs and Housing, has spent the past few years ordering municipalities, big and small, to compile new official growth plans, which will lay out how many homes they plan to build and how they plan to do it, whether they'll like expand their boundaries to fit more homes or whether they want to make it dense, how many homes they're going to build. These documents are not public. There may be some drafts of some of them floating around online, but basically they've been made by the cities and towns and sent to the ministry, sent to Clark's office. He's going to either have to rubber stamp them or not. The problem is that they were embarked upon long before this $1.5 million Mm. goal was set. They're not even going to get even halfway to the goal, most likely. Nothing is lined up between what the province is saying, what municipalities are spending time doing, and whether or not Steve Clark approves these plans. If he approves them, he's basically admitting they're not going to meet that target. So all of that to say, as much as you might have heard Doug Ford on the election campaign talking about 1.5 million homes, or if you might watch Question Period and hear them talking about it, or, you know, just turn on the TV during an announcement, a government announcement and hear it, just know this plan is already set up to fail without massive, massive interventions. But, you know, there are tools being added to toolboxes, uh, or at least that's what they, you know, the, the pieces are telling us nearly every day in question period when government MPPs and cabinet ministers repeatedly speak about their absolute commitment to getting it done. Before the election, there was the More Homes for Everyone Act. Yay! More Homes for Everyone? More more Homes for for Everyone. More homes for everyone. The syntax of it, it means, kind of makes it seem like everyone could have more than one home, though. As long as everyone has at least one, I think we're actually in a fairly reasonable shape. If more, there were already more homes for everyone, then we wouldn't need stronger mayors yeah, we building really homes. Have, we wouldn't really have a crisis. But anyway, that bizarrely named act enacted some recommendations from the Housing Affordability Task Force. But, you know, it's not like the Ford government was going to start greenlighting towers on, you know, all these residential streets populated by single family homes that are not unlikely to be filled with their own supporters. That's At least they weren't going to do that in the run up to an election. So the bill was weak need, for lack of a better word. It was pretty hollow. It passed. But so far, there haven't been more homes for everyone, which is why stronger mayors need to be building homes. Mm. So to round it up, to tackle the housing crisis, even over just the past year, basically, we've had uh, task forces, official plans, legislation and an election all basically amounting to nothing. There were some pro-housing and pro-development people both who, after the More Homes for Everyone Act was introduced and everyone thought it was a weak piece of legislation because it was, they were holding out hope that after the PCs won the spring election, they'd be empowered and embark on a second term rife with new development and sticking it to mayors and NIMBYs who are slowing down or nixing new housing projects. Well, the PCs were electorally empowered with a majority government, but instead of introducing a new bill this summer that took away, you know, towns and cities' powers to Mm -hmm. completely shut down developments, they introduced a bill to pass the buck to mayors, or at least some mayors. Hashtag not all mayors. Really, it was just the Toronto and Ottawa mayors, and maybe others in the future. You've probably heard about the veto powers that they've been granted, but it's it's so much more than that. I mean, it really will fundamentally reshape how our cities, or at least how the province's two largest cities, are governed. 
so let me just put it this way: as back up a, a sec. Like, so city councilors have traditionally had two different types of responsibilities. One is their sort of ombudsman role, helping out constituents in local matters, often serving as a kind of go-between between residents and city staff. The other responsibility is their more legislative function, serving as one member of an overall city council, helping to guide and craft citywide policies. I mean, I strongly believe that municipalities are by far our most democratic level of government because councils are party-free legislative bodies where the majority rules, and to achieve that majority, a mayor or even a councillor almost necessarily has to build coalitions or at least reach beyond their natural constituencies or their natural allies. A mayor can be just one vote in that, but they do have a wide array of tools to bring a majority of council on side, and even marginally competent mayors seldom lose control of the council and of their own ability to get their agenda through it. But but it is messy. The more democratic a system is, the messier it is. And for someone from the private sector like John Tory, who, I should remind you, was the first Toronto mayor in over a century to not have previously served on its council, the system that we have now, or that we had until a couple of weeks ago, or I guess we'll have until the end of this term, is super duper inefficient. You know, Rogers, for example, surely wouldn't do half the crap it did if its executives had, you know, convinced people that their ideas were good and fair. And so this new law is less about creating strong mayors, per se, than about taking power from a city's legislative branch, as it were, and vesting it in an executive. The days of council as a deliberative body are quite likely done. Until a couple of weeks ago, the mayor of Toronto didn't actually have that many powers actually set out in provincial legislation. Like, they were supposed to provide leadership and make recommendations to council to chair the meetings. In the new Strong Mayors Building Homes law, the mayors of Toronto and Ottawa get to unilaterally deliver orders and instructions to city staff directly without having to go through council unilaterally hire and fire the city manager, who's the head of the civil service. They get to unilaterally reorganize and restructure city departments and the whole organization of the city. They get to unilaterally appoint the chairs and vice chairs of local boards, unilaterally establish and dissolve standing committees as well as appoint their chairs. And they get to single-handedly prepare the city's annual budgets, which would be presented to the council pretty much as a package. And any effort by the council to tweak it could potentially be vetoed. And that's in addition to being able to ram items through council if they believe that doing so, quote, could potentially advance a provincial priority or to veto decisions if they could potentially interfere with a provincial priority, uh, which for now refers to housing issues. But the minister has said that, you know, the provincial government could easily broaden that at any time. And, and, and to make sure that the mayor has the last word, the law specifically ensures that their decisions can't be reviewed or overturned by the courts on the basis of unreasonableness. They're enshrining the right for a mayor to exercise their nearly unchecked power in an arbitrary fashion. What could go wrong? It was very interesting to see the reaction when the Toronto Star broke the news that Doug Ford would be bringing in strong mayors. It was big news, like a lot of retweets. But I think, you know, for a while it was pretty unclear what that actually would mean. And then by the time the bill actually got introduced and we really got a look at sort of the insides of its like the legislation's guts, a lot of the interest in it had sort of moved along, you know? Yeah, that, that is often the case. They put it out. They get the big headlines around the veto powers, which is not which is, you know, far from the biggest thing. It's also possible they hadn't really written up the rest of it yet. But I know for myself, I took like a month to work up the emotional strength to actually read it because I knew it would make me very, very sad. And it did. 
So the big question is, will the Strong Mayors Building Homes Act actually do anything? Is this tool in the toolbox a useful tool or is it a more of a first aid kit just filled with bandages and, and, and nothing, and nothing else. else? And that's uh, not a reference to anything that may have just happened before recording. No. <laughs> I mean, I've lived in the city of Toronto for the past eight years and longer than that. During, but he's been mayor for eight years. He's been mayor for eight and years. I've been here for those eight yeah. years. And I haven't seen any hidden signs that he is about to rezone the Danforth the second he's elected or reelected next month. The guy, John Tory's whole MO is keeping the city exactly the same for the wealthy homeowners that want it that way. Like, that's all he does. And the main thing those homeowners want is, as you alluded to, with the same suburban homeowners that, that vote for Doug Ford, the the wealthy homeowners in Toronto that vote for John Tory and potentially also Doug Ford, they want everything to stay the same and nothing to be built near them. So banking on John Tory somehow using this power to solve the housing crisis seems as fruitless as banking on the PCs to use mm-hmm. their second majority to solve the housing crisis. As we see, they'd rather throw someone a wrench out of their toolbox at the window and keep on driving. <laughs> I feel like a wrench is a more delicate instrument. It's kind of it's more of like. I don't know. One of those mouths used to tenderize meat, perhaps. Okay. Yeah. I don't know. John Tory, I feel like a lot of people are very frustrated with John Tory, and I, he's been the mayor for eight years, so that makes sense. But he's the guy who, the maddest I've ever seen this guy was this spring when he was up in arms about the fact that a, a small piece of Osgood Hall's lawn, Osgood Hall is a court building. It's like, that the home of the Law Society of Ontario and yeah. the Ontario Court of Appeal at the northeast corner of Queen and University. It has, has, like an, a, it has huge, a very nice lawn. Yeah, huge like lawn. It's got a lot of, of its own space going on for a public building. Mm-hmm. They To build the Ontario Line subway that the Doug Ford government and Metrolinx are building, they need to put a secondary entrance to mm. the subway station there, which is going to require like a little corner of the lawn getting chopped off. Tory so pissed. This is the thing that gets to him of everything wrong in the city. He's like, hands off Osgood Hall, he says. If that's the thing that gets this dude fired up, we're not getting the housing crisis fixed. I mean, is there anyone who less characterizes the idea of a city builder? Like, he, he aspires to be little more than a city maintainer, and he can't even pull that off. And he's such a little bitch. That time when, again, a couple months ago, he was ranting in the city hall chambers about... Toronto Star columnist Sean McAuliffe giving him a hard time on Twitter. I mean, he didn't mention Sean McAuliffe by name. I took that as maybe him and Alex Buzikovic at the Globe. But oh, anyway. yeah, play that clip. I'd love to sit here, and I guess I'm always amazed because I try to be sort of non-ideological, maybe to a fault, I don't know. I try to be pragmatic and practical and sort of find that ground where we can achieve the best of all worlds. And the intolerance of the notion you'd even look at this and sort of say, well, maybe we can't have a program quite as robust as last year's or the year before, but we're still continuing with it. The intolerance of that that you see on social media and even in some, uh, you know, some of the, uh, the, the, the journalist comments is, is staggering. So as you mentioned, Jonathan, the veto power that the mayors are going to get is going to only apply to provincial priorities. The province has said housing is going to be that priority. They haven't actually written the regulation yet that's going to describe what this actually means. Uh, We don't know what this is going to actually look like. But I mean, I guess, Jonathan, you know a lot more about how like city council things work. Like, can you think of a hypothetical scenario or like motion or like what kind of stuff goes through city council 
that the mayor could veto which would build housing. I mean, conceivably, yes. I love the idea that John Tory or any mayor only house the homeowners due to like an obstructionist council. Like if the idea here is to overcome, you know, vested interest in particularly in neighborhoods dominated by single family family homes or other local interests pushing back against unrestricted development, the idea that the mayor or any mayor would actually take the side of the developers and ram through more height and density. The issue is not that they can't cobble together the votes to say no to homeowners, right? Like that's siding with homeowners, siding with property owners. That's kind of the default. And there are probably structural ways to fix that in our terms of our electoral system. This is clearly not meant to address that. Right. Yeah. I mean, I just keep trying to think of a hypothetical situation where by the mayor vetoes something, because to me, vetoing is shutting down most in most cases, right? Unless you're yes. proposing something and everyone else tries to shut it down, then you shut them down like a double veto. I don't know. I mean, I guess I just really like I honestly really just okay. want to know how does the veto get a house built <laughs> ever? It's such a it's like a straw man argument, right? It's like it's like they're saying the reason there isn't more housing being built is because of vested interests among property owners who push back against development. And that is partially true. That is absolutely the case. But the straw man here is the idea that, oh, if only Mayor Tory didn't have to go up against these counselors or whatever who that he would he would be brave and say no to these property owners. No, it's really hard to imagine any mayor, even a progressive one, having the courage to actually do that and run roughshod over the wishes of a neighborhood or the the, the powerful people in a neighborhood so thoroughly. I mean, you're just the it is frankly the easiest single easiest way to make enemies in municipal politics. Okay. So I mean, I guess what you're saying is that I shouldn't be taking this Doug Ford no. at his word. And that's what I'm doing oh. wrong, where I'm like, yes. okay, maybe there is actually a way the stronger mayors will be building houses. <laughs> yeah. Like, is there, I mean, the very fact that you have to think, like, it's right in the, the title of legislation, stronger mayors building homes or building houses. And the very fact that you have to sort of squint at that and parse it, like, is there any way this could conceivably be true, suggests that maybe it's not like an if this, then that situation. Right. And I mean, to bring it back to the provincial then, the Housing Affordability Task Force, before their report was even published, it like leaked a little bit. Basically, the first thing to ever happen before the leaked report was out, the city of Oakville's council was going crazy over it and passing motions to disavow it because it encouraged development and the rich people in Oakville don't want that. So, you know, by Doug Ford making that crappy homes for everybody mm-hmm. bill, they're doing exactly what John Tory is going to do. And no election will change anything. And they're just punting it down. Anyways, yeah, it's even more desperate and it's useless. Useless. That's That's the word. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com.
So what about, <laughs> I mean, hiring and firing the chief planner? I guess, I mean, again, I'm just sort of playing into their own rhetoric, but that's one of the people that a strong mayor will be able to hire or fire. Um, and it's something the Ontario Real Estate Association, which is helmed by former PC leader Tim mm. Hudak, they have pointed out they like that about the bill. Maybe, again, I'm just asking questions I should know the answer to, but are like, are Toronto and Ottawa's chief planners really the ones holding housing back? Yes, the the, pro- the problem with Toronto and Ottawa and cities in general is too much planning, <laughs> too much okay. thoughtful design, Yeah, too don't much even foresight. answer my question. Yeah, don't even answer my question. Do you think it's possible that Ottawa and Toronto proceed down two very different tracks with this? We know that Toronto is going to elect John Tory again in a month. But Ottawa has a real mayoral race going on. Hmm. Progressive councillor Catherine McKenney, she is running and is pretty popular. She could win. Her less progressive rival, Mark Sutcliffe, he has promised to build 100,000 homes. I don't know. Could we see, like, what a progressive mayor does with this bill versus what John Tory does with this bill? Is that going to be a future? I mean, the one way to look at it is that it's hard to imagine any person or any politician who has these powers not taking advantage of them to advance their agenda because everyone believes their agenda is the right one, the correct one. You want to take that step. On the other hand, I mean, like, I mean, like, like, fuck, like, but imagine, like, if Patrick Brown had signed up to run for mayor of Toronto, the PCs probably would have just, like, scrapped the whole thing and maybe eliminated the role of mayor entirely and said, imposing <laughs> on the city some sort of non hierarchical consensus model, right? Like, yeah. the second there's someone progressive, they'll change it. They'll get rid of it. They'll just make it no longer apply to the city. And there's nothing anyone can do about it. I mean, we talk about cities being, municipalities being the creatures of the province in in Canada, which is true, but I find that really simplifies things because frankly, like animals, pets tend to have more rights vis-a-vis their owners than municipalities do with respect to the provinces that they're inside, right? Like there are laws against animal cruelty, for example. I mean, okay, so I think we've determined I was asking all the wrong questions when I was trying to find real substantial things that could happen with this bill. So it's not going to get housing built necessarily. I mean, I guess, no, it's not, right? <laughs> no, I, I I mean, maybe. In the end, they'll probably point to a couple developments and say, see, we built new homes. The legislation is so absurdly disconnected from its ostensible purpose that it may as well cite as its goal that they're trying to like denazify city council. There's there's no logical connection whatsoever. It's just, I guess, a phrase or an idea that they thought would be a popular thing that well, no one no, could and because they to. promised they had to do something after the election, right, about housing. So this is them. It's the least. Yeah, it's hard. Right. To it's think. putting building homes in the title of a bill, though. That's as yes. far as it goes. Okay. I think that's what makes the name of it so funny because the grammar of it, strong mayors, comma, building homes. It doesn't need the comma. It doesn't really. need a comma, right? Like that could be the beginning of a sentence or maybe a whole sentence. Strong, strong mayors, man. building homes. But instead, the comma's in there, and it just, you know, a comma should at least be linking ideas together. But in this case, it should be like a slash or something. Yeah, I mean, they're kind of yeah, versus. I mean, they're kind of tipping their hat with this comma splice here. Is this even comma splice? Oh, my goodness. Probably a slash would work, a, a dash, perhaps one of those, like, perhaps like those upside down question marks. Yeah, it's a very loaded comma. So is this a ploy by Doug Ford to just have more control over the city of Toronto as some sort of revenge on the council that stalemated his brother a lot and pissed him off too? Yeah. 
Probably. I mean, it's, it's probably largely vindictiveness. And it's probably also just the general conservative distaste, not exclusively conservative, but particularly conservative distaste for the way municipal governments tend to run and operate, especially in Ontario, where there's no party system. It's messy. It's inefficient. It's not how a business would run because it's not a business. So I feel like this episode has just kind of turned into me interviewing you, Jono. But... I know. Often it's the other way around. So <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I'm okay with yeah. So let's, yeah, let's keep it going. And I have one final question. So how does this hurt local democracy then? And why does that matter? I guess I think municipal government at its best is about like immediacy and tangibility. It's about like every resident having the right to play a part in shaping the city around them, their immediate environment. No, there's a line that former Calgary Mayor Nahid Nenshi has been using for years, but I first encountered it in the, the Globe in 2011. And I'm gonna... Sometimes I joke that if the federal government disappeared, it'd probably be a week or two before anyone noticed. If your provincial government disappeared, uh, you'd notice pretty quick if you were in the hospital or in school. But if your city government disappeared and there were no roads, no transit, no waste and recycling collection, and no clean water, and no first responders, and no 911. Well, you'd notice pretty quick because you'd be dead. There's one level of government that is responsible for most of the contours of our day-to-day lives. And the idea that you'd go out of your way to make it more remote, more abstract, less accountable, less responsive, feels like it's to entrench that sense of dispossession and placelessness that characterizes Toronto at its worst. I mean, I can't speak for Ottawa, though. For all all I know, that that might already be the default there. I mean, Ottawa is weird because they're like half governed by the Mm -hmm. the NCC. So it is kind of the federal government like runs at least. And now we're half governed by a chunk of the town. And now we're kind of being half governed by the province. Yeah. What 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 you're trying to do? Be more like Ottawa. Yeah. Let's get that Montreal mayor up in here. She will make it cool. Go to Montreal and be like, oh, public space can be nice. And then you come to Toronto and you get hit by a transport truck that's for some reason driving down Queen Street West. Did you get hit by a transport truck? No, but I'm afraid I'm going to every day. It's terrifying out there. Maniacs. And now it's time for Foreseeable Disaster of the Month. My foreseeable disaster of the month is that the Doug Ford government is now openly saying it's going to find ways to further privatize the healthcare system. They haven't said what they're going to do yet, only that the status quo isn't working and something's got to change, something, something, innovation. I mean, I think a lot of people would agree with the sentiment that the status quo isn't working, given that dozens of emergency rooms shut down uh, across the province this summer, some of them multiple times. Uh, Although what healthcare advocates and unions would say the problem is, is that the bill, PC's wage restraint bill, Bill 124, is uh, deterring healthcare workers from staying in the system, making it harder to recruit, and that therefore doctors and nurses and everyone in between are run off their feet, leaving hospital systems teetering. But instead, what seems like the likeliest way or likeliest system change the PCs will go for will be to allow private surgery clinics and private surgery hospitals to open up. I would guess these will most likely be specialized in specific procedures. So maybe a knee replacement hospital. They have been doing this under the Jason Kenney's UCP government in Alberta. They opened a bunch of private surgery clinics that specialize in things like that. 
They are still accept OHIP cards for payments, so you're not paying out of pocket for the surgery, although the hospitals are likely going to try to charge you to stay overnight. They're going to charge you for various little up fees along the way, because or else why would you do that, right? It's going to have for-profit enterprise. I mean, on the upside, these clinics could potentially be very efficient. They could shorter the wait times for people in Ontario who need a knee replacement. But, I mean, the connecting that to the emergency room crisis doesn't really make a lot of sense because if you're getting a knee replacement, you're not going, you know, from the emergency room to that. It's a long kind of process with consultations and doctors and waiting. So, you know, emergency rooms being shut down won't be helped by this if they go for it. Are you and, saying this is a, there's a flimsy justification for something they wanted to do anyway? Yeah, there's a loaded comma in here, too. <laughs> It'll most likely poach nurses and healthcare aides from the public system. You starve the public system and then be like, well, we got to privatize it. It doesn't work. And another foreseeable disaster in the sort of same mold that I think is worth talking about in an Ontario context is what's going on with TELUS Health in British Columbia. Earlier this year, TELUS Health MyCare launched in BC, or it might have been last year. This is TELUS is in the telecom company? TELUS is in telecom company. Even in Ontario, they have like digital ways you can like see doctors through their apps and stuff like that. They got into the like health game during the pandemic. So earlier this year, or maybe sometime last year, they launched a thing called TELUS Health MyCare. They started recruiting and poaching, basically, family doctors away from their practices by offering them to pay them more, clearly. And therefore, those doctors had to tell their patients they could only continue seeing them if they paid an annual fee of $4,500 a year. So... I could see that being a future in oh. Ontario. Right now, The under a lot of pressure, the NDP government in um, BC is kind of doing a study into this and investigating whether it violates the Canada Health Act. But the, even the NDP government there hasn't seemed, honestly, too upset about it. <laughs> I think it's worth just talking about that that's happening in BC because we really don't pay attention to stuff like that. And I would not be surprised if all of a sudden this starts opening up as a product here. What a terrifying idea of having a, a telecom, a, tele- a big telecom in charge of being close to healthcare whatsoever. And I'm sure people point out, oh, there's some infrastructure thing, but still, that's that's frightening. It's like, Bell, let's breathe, or Rogers, what, what the fuck are you going to do? I mean, that's what's happening in the States, too. It's yeah. like Amazon and the tech companies are all trying to get into the healthcare market, so digital health market. So it's not surprising, honestly. I think that TELUS is going that route. And I mean, then where does it leave you if you can afford to pay $4,500 a year and aren't furious at your doctor that you've, I mean, say you've been seeing the same doctor for 30 years and you're 65 and all of a sudden they're like, oh, yeah, we're going to tell us, like, <laughs> you'd be so pissed. Like, it's very hard to have a family doctor. You're in basically in a minority if you have one, just making things slowly worse. Decline, yeah. decline. And Alison, my foreseeable disaster of the month, or perhaps for the foreseeable future, and it's not even perhaps limited to Ontario, although exemplified by the things we discussed, is that the people who were largely responsible for breaking things, or at least for starving them or undernourishing them, will continue to be rewarded with more and more power, uh, with which they will double down on the same strategies that largely got us into this mess in the first place. And it will continue to be a cycle again and again as the dominant mode of politics these days until the planet heats up and uh, we have some bigger things to worry about. More assholes spurring decline. (laughs) 
And that was Like the Duck, a show about loaded commas. I'm Jonathan Goldsby. You can find me on Twitter at Goldsby and occasionally hosting Shortcuts, which is that media criticism show that comes out Thursdays on the main Candleland feed. I'm Allison Smith, and you can find me on Twitter at Queen's Park Today. Our new producer is Katie Lore. Welcome, Katie. Uh, Andre Poole is our production coordinator. Welcome, Andre, too. And our theme music is by Nathan Burley, who doesn't get a welcome because the show's music hasn't changed since the first episode, but we appreciate his work nonetheless. Our podcast is listener-supported. Go to wagthedug.com to help us keep this podcast going. Lisa Kudrow was fired from the set of Frasier. Charles Schultz was told he'd never make a living scribbling. Missy Elliott was dropped by her label. And Rita Moreno couldn't land a role of substance for seven years after West Side Story. The stories of famous names, their lesser-known rejections, and the insights those rejections provide. We regret to inform you, The Rejection Podcast. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. This is Roundabout Season 2, and we're back to share more stories from the road and the memories made along the way. We're talking rest stops. If we're stopping to get gas, you will be timed. (laughs) (laughs) You will be right. Misguided plans. I grew up in the city, so I have like... You know, a healthy fear of real extreme darkness. <laughs> this was like wilderness. A lot of laughs. Y'all weird, but you, <laughs> yeah, you, you were different. Like, you were real different, bro. I can't really put my finger on it. And so much more. Just goes to show that unexpected yeah. things sometimes are the best when it comes to a road trip. Roundabout Season 2, presented by Nissan, is live now with new episodes rolling out every Thursday. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com. <laughs>